You may be seated. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity again to wake up and be in your presence. We thank you that you love us and that you bless us with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that you, on this day so many years ago, uh, doused upon the world. That you poured out upon your creation in Pentecost. So we thank you for that. And that spirit that was poured out is what gives us the understanding and the, the, the presence and the love that we have, that we feel, that we know, all comes from you. So we ask right now, through the reading of this word and the words of my mouth and the things that I might say, solely come from the spirit, through your son, to glorify you, Father. This we pray. See your son's holy name. Amen. Hear the reading of the word from the Philippians, 127 through 22 through 5. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw, I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm breaking this sermon. It's not two sermons. Sometimes I do that. This is one sermon as I prepared it, but it's broken up, broken up into two. So this is, this is direction just for the, the person who's running the PowerPoint. Chapter one will be the first half. Chapter two will be the second half, okay? Let's go to the first verse in chapter one. Because you see, uh, when we talk about what, what Paul was doing, what Paul was talking about, the things that he was saying is, is crucial. Remember, he was in prison. And he never saw the light of day. And prison was such a different animal. We'll talk about this later when he talks about it in Philippians. About how whenever, you get, uh, whenever you're in prison, there's no food line. There's no clothes line. There's no, they don't provide you anything. You're just locked away. And you need people to give you food. And so either your family would give you food or, 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 or people that had a, a heart <laughs> or cared for others would give food. Right? So whenever we talk about prison, Paul being in house arrest at times, he talks about 
We're saying that he needed someone to provide for him. He couldn't make tents. He couldn't sell tents. He couldn't do any of that because he was in prison. And so he's sitting there in prison, and he's only getting to hear stories about what's going on in this Philippian church. And if you remember what I said last week, for those who weren't here, he loved the Philippians. He talked about in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, Colossians. He was like, oh, you're getting it wrong, everybody. You're getting it wrong. This is why you're getting it wrong. And then he would go on and kind of lambaste them. And in 1 Corinthians, he was very, very tough for folks. I mean, he was really harsh on them. If you really got some of the language, very, very harsh. Philippians is a little different. The letter to Philippians is, is, is clearly a letter of warmth written to people that he loves. No, he loves everybody in Christian love. But this is a special type of friendship, love, that he clearly had. I mean, it's, 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 I'm not saying that he didn't actually love people. I'm saying what he had here is, is a friendship, a relationship with these folks. And you could tell it by how warm this letter was. And so this is what he's saying. Look, I'm in prison, and I, I get to only hear. I may get to be with you. And he refers to it from time to time, but he goes, I may get to see it, but I'll tell you, I get to hear it. What's going on in your faith? What's going on in your church? What's going on with your lives? With who you are and what you're up to? I get to hear it. And let me give you some encouragement, is what he says. And this is, this is what enters. By the way, this is the beginning of the letter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Boy, I don't even know what that means necessarily. I do. But it, it doesn't come naturally because I'm a sinful human being. Right? This is the issue. Only let your, only let your manner of life, only let what you do be worthy of the fact that you are saved in Christ is really what he's saying here. See, the gospel of Christ is not just the, uh, the fact that uh, Jesus Christ died for your sins and amen, I got that part. I got the, the, the fire insurance, as some would call it, or the, the hell insurance. I got that taken care of because of what Jesus did. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here. Let your life reflect the fact that your creator loves you. Let your life reflect the fact in everything it does that you are loved by your creator. Okay. That is a beautiful expression. Huge. It's the overarching concept of what he's going to say and what I'm going to be preaching on today. That's kind of nice for me. Because whenever you get things like this, you get this umbrella statement, then you, gotta, you get to explain it when you prepare a sermon. That's kind of a nice part of scripture. It doesn't happen all the time, but this one is. It says, let your life reflect the gospel. And then he goes on to explain. See, whether I come to see you or I'm absent, okay, I referred to that. I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. Boom. So that's, that's one example of how your life can reflect the gospel. Because you see, our God in Jesus Christ didn't just save you, or you, or you, or you. We like to think that, and we've said it, and I've heard people say it, and I've said it from time to time. He's your personal Savior, right? Have we said that? That's, I know I've uttered it from time to time. That he's your personal savior, as if to suggest that maybe he didn't save another person. We know that that's not what we're saying, but by saying that he's a personal savior, we're not saying that if he's my savior and he's your savior, that means, you know what? We got to work together. We got to be together. Because if he saved you and he saved me, that means he's kind of called us to a similar group. Now, we know that to be called the church, right? Be of one mind. 
Because if you're going to live as in the gospel of Christ, if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, what does that mean? That means that your unity is not in the fact that you reside on a property or that you even... This is, I'm probably speaking more to me than I am speaking to anyone else in this room. That it's a certain set of beliefs. Guess what? It's maybe scandalous. Jesus is not just an RCA member, right? He's not just a member of the RCA church or the Protestant church. That's scandalous. He is calling his, he's calling his creation to him. He's calling people to him. And that's what we have here. Is that it's in Jesus Christ. It's not about some sort of artificial thing that has good meaning. That's important. Don't get me wrong. Hey, I'm a reformed, I'm as reformed as you can get. But I understand that I have limitations to my understanding of who God the Father is. And that my unity with a Methodist, with a Baptist, with a Catholic, with an Orthodox, you name it. If our unity is not in our identity with the denomination, it is an identity in Jesus Christ. And what he is actively doing in this world, the tradition and the belief system and the structure in which I'm able to see it, the only way that I'm able to express it happens to be through the RCA. Don't get me wrong. But first and foremost, my unity with you, my unity with everyone in this room has nothing to do with the RCA. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that is what Paul is telling us. That is exactly what Paul is telling us. Your unity has nothing to do with, oh, well, I grew up a Methodist and that's who I am. Or I grew up an RCA and that's who I am. No. Your unity has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Amen. Because guess what? I just was at the RCA headquarters this week. Not that there was anything wrong, but I'm glad my unity is in Jesus Christ and not the RCA, the headquarters. Not that there was anything that I recognized that was a problem, but if, it, if this is it, I hope there's much more. Because Jesus promises us much more. So, with one mind, firm and one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, this concept of standing firm shows up several times. But side by side, I think, is our biggest fear. And I'll explain more about that in a second. Go to the next verse, please. And not frightened at anything by your opponents. So how do you stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? It's not by going and doing X, Y, and Z. Being united in Jesus Christ and... Not being frightened by your opponents. Now, it's interesting. You could say, well, what is our, who's our opponents? Who, who opposes us today? And then we could say that we can come up with a good list. You know, I remember growing up in the 80s. Um, I was young. But I, who was the enemy of every movie in the 80s? A Russian, by the way. <laughs> every movie. Rocky, no, Rocky three or whatever, Rocky four rather. It was a Russian. It was. I just grew up thinking, ooh, they were my enemy, just by nature. They were my enemy, right? 
And then, of course, the, the wall fell and all that stuff happened. And you realize, who was our opponent? Who was the opponent? Of, who could we identify with our opponent? Well, we have an issue here. Because our opponent is actually kind of obligatory. I'm not talking about uh, some sort of world power. I'm talking about what is our opponent? Who opposes our way of life or what we're doing? Whatever that may be. I won't identify the opponent. Because I think the opponent is far more insipid. I think it's far more it's the things that's going to draw you away from loving Jesus. I, I need to earn more money. I need to do this. I need to do that. I have to get that done. No. That's possibly pulling you away from Jesus Christ. No. The enemy, I think, shows up. The opponent shows up far more in many things in ways that you can't even begin to understand or imagine. And so, this is a clear sign. You should not be frightened by your enemy. You should not be frightened by that which opposes you. Does that make sense? Okay, you say, like, okay, why? Well, why? Well, I could tell you in a spiritual sense, if you are afraid of what opposes you, or if you are afraid of the pressure that comes your way, the reality of it is this, is that you stop trusting Christ. Now, I'm speaking boldly right now, whether you know it or not, to our current context about what's coming up with our church and the decisions that have been made and the things that are coming. There is fear that could come about. Do you think Christ is surprised by what's going on? He knows full well what's going on in each and every one of your hearts. He does. The decision for this church to close was a hard decision talk about that ad nauseum, but what I can say is, is that we have a living and active God who knows full well what's going on in each and every one of your hearts, and the sadness that comes about through that. And if you're going to have a fear, if you're going to be frightened by this, about what's to come, what you're saying is that, bear with me, you don't trust Christ through this moment. He has you in his righteous right hand, and I believe that, and he knows what you're going through. Don't be frightened by this. Don't be frightened about what's to come. Our God has us. Perfect love casts out all fear. And the love that you have comes from Jesus Christ. And he has you. And he knows what you're going through. I can tell you that. So this is what I think he's trying to say. This is what I think Paul's trying to say. Because the funny thing is, is that Paul knows full well what's coming his way. He's not just seeing something that he loves close. He's talking about his life. He's about to die. I think he kind of knows a bit of that. He's going to go talk to her. At least he's going to go appeal to Caesar. And he knows that his life is going to be in someone else's hands. And so when he says this, he says, don't be frightened by your opponents. Those things that are going to try to draw you away from Jesus Christ, the, the, the gospel of Jesus, don't be afraid of that. Because he has you in his righteous right hand. He's going to protect you. If you are afraid of going forward and the things that are going forward, then you begin to give credence to the fact that you're not sure, you don't trust, you, don't, you haven't completely compelled your heart and mind over to him. Now, that's a harsh statement, and I'm being a bit forthright here. But that is, that is generally true. 
We like to control. We like to control certain things. And I think what Paul's saying is, is that you're not going to be able to control everything. Some things you have to give over to him. Let's turn to verse 21. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Um, so these are the elements of, uh, of being, uh, living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that is a concept, wait a minute, in that is a concept that you might have to suffer? I don't often, I, I really, very rarely, will speak out directly about another uh, pulpit, another person's. But there is a modern mindset that if you just love God enough, you will be blessed. Have you heard this? Have you heard this message? This is wrong. <laughs> this is wrong. The gospel might lead you to some place that you hate. As a reality. He might lead you to do certain things that in your wildest dreams, two weeks ago, you would never have thought you would have been brought to do. But now you feel a sense of peace and comfort to go into and be in and be reside in. That is what our God will sometimes draw. I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm not saying that you will, if you love God enough, you will suffer. I'm not doing an absolute inverse of what the, what the other pulpit might say. But what I'm saying is that sometimes, sometimes your deep love and your deep trust in the Father will actually lead you to suffer. Be poor. Be beaten. Be stoned. And go through the things you may not want to do. But I don't think we live this way. I don't. I think, I think that we live... I mean, I, all you have to do... I looked up yesterday. If you Google church sues, how many times a church will petition its own rights because it's being infringed upon? I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't sue or anything. But that's not the point that I'm trying to make. What I'm trying to make is, is that we think that we should not be infringed, that we should have our rights always comfortably within our, and we should always have our comfort level. We should never have to suffer one bit or one iota because every one of these lawsuits that you looked up uh, uh, on Google, they always had to do with uh, uh, you know, uh, some sort of property issue or, or how the church was uh, inconvenienced from time to time or some sort of situation. I think one of them was that... Uh, <laughs> The church sued a couple because they gave a bad review on Google, Google Marketplace or something like that about the church. A church sued them for half a million dollars. I kid you not. Isn't that crazy? That's not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I'm not even talking about necessarily a litigious attitude our desire to go and sue all the time. All I'm saying is, is that we are quick to feel that we should not have our comfort infringed upon. And I think what Paul's saying is, sometimes it's going to make you suffer. Suffer a lot. And you know what you're going to get through that? The deeper profound trust in him. The deeper profound sense of his love for you that you would have had if everything was always easy all the time, you now have a deeper sense of trust in who he is and a deeper love coming through it. 
This is what we don't get when we quote the verse, I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you, the plans to bless you. You know what is happening to the people at that time? They are suffering. (laughs) They are being beaten. They are actually having their children killed in front of them in Jeremiah. And that sounds harsh. And And God's coming into them and saying, I know the plans I have for you, the plans to bless you, the plans to prosper you. We don't like to quote the context of that verse. We don't, because we like the promise, but we don't like what comes with it sometimes. And this is the reality of living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it doesn't come easy. By the way, the gospel itself, intermittent, right in the center of the gospel message, is the fact that our God dies for us. It's not all easy. You're going to pick up your cross. What do you think that means? So, Paul's the bring down here. Oh, oh, woe is me. I'm in prison. I'm going to make you feel bad about yourself. But let's talk, to, let's talk about verse chapter 2. Let's move on past this. So, if there is any encouragement, <laughs> it kind of gives you, hey, things are going to stink for you guys. The church is going to be hard. You need to be sticking together, one-on-one, side-by-side, being together. But it's going to be difficult in the sake of Christ. But if that's bad news for you, let me tell you some encouragement. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy that I might be able to provide you, there is any... uh, Complete my joy by being of the same same mind. See, this is the beauty of this message. Not my message. Paul's message. Hopefully it's the slight glimmer of the beauty of my message. I think it's Paul's message. He says, this is going to be difficult. And you're going to experience a lot of things. The gospel of Jesus Christ will lead you to very difficult things. But let me tell you, your joy will be by having the same mind. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, <clears throat> we're going to go to the 16 over group, and I've experienced same mind from, from time to time. Um, uh, who, you could just by a raising of hand, who have experienced playing on a team? And who has experienced the joy of a good win? I hope that's everybody. If not, that's, that's kind of stinks, right? I remember, uh, I'm going to give a bunch of obligatory sports analogies, but I think this is what it's worth. I mean, you don't have to actually have played sports to kind of get on board with this. Um, it was raining. It was horrible. Uh, it was this, this football field was just caked with mud, and we were playing uh, uh, Mapletown, and uh, we, uh, Mapletown had this uh, running back who was going to go D1 college. Big deal. And, uh, and so the poor guy, they ran him to death, and what that, that mean that we had to tackle him, and that caused us a lot of pain and frustration. And so we had, we had to play against him, and we played him, and it was seven to seven. And it went, to, went into overtime. And we made the last tackle, and we won. And I'll never forget my football coach. My football coach was always very kind of abrasive, uh, not really stoic, but he certainly was not an emotive guy. And after he got up from the huddle, this guy was, he was jumping up and down. He was, he was going like this. This guy who would not, 
do something like this. He was jumping up and down. It was like he came out on the field and tackled that guy with us. And we all jumped up and down. And what that meant was is that they didn't get the two-point conversion. He didn't win. Blah, 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 blah. We won. And we were jumping up and down as a team. And our coach was in the middle of the huddle, and he was jumping up and down. The first time, I knew him from a little kid because he was my gym teacher. Up until the age I was 17, I'd never seen that guy jump up and down with joy ever. Until that day, we were all of like mind, and we were so happy. <laughs> that moment, we were happy. I think not something as trivial as football. I know I'm in central Ohio, I shouldn't say football's trivial, but guess what? I'm from Pittsburgh and I get to say just as comfortably, trivial, football's trivial. To what Paul's talking about here. Having a like mind in Jesus Christ, you are jumping together. You can be, you can be bound together in this like mind in what Jesus Christ has done. the same love, being in full accord. And again, he says of one mind. By the way, if Paul ever does this, you're reading Paul, and he says same mind in one mind within the same verse, he's kind of hammering something here. You kind of want to pay attention to it. If he shows the verse and he shows a word over and over again, especially something like mind, he's trying to say, you need to get together. This isn't about a same property. This isn't about a same uh, events that you did in the past. He's talking about a same mind, a same mindset. It could have been on that field. It could have been on another field. It could have been on any field that we were on. He was jumping up and down, and we were jumping up with him because we were all the same mind because we wanted to win so bad. And so even less, uh, even, uh, less trivial than that is the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are going to be jumping together by what Jesus has done, our hope our salvation, and who we are is united around that one man who is God. And that will cause us to jump up and down. Jesus will cause us to be of one mind. You know what that doesn't mean? What happens here? What happens on a Sunday? In this building. Because Jesus will be praised in this building again. Let's go to verse 3. Here's another thing he tells us about that. Well, let me tell you something in encouragement. You know what? It's going to be tough. Remember, this is chapter 1. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. Things are going to be uh, hard on you. But you have one mind. You get to be excited about being of one mind. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Or in some verse, some translations that says vain conceit. Because the word itself doesn't help, doesn't say it well enough with conceit. Vain conceit, meaning, you know what it means? Vain conceit? Making yourself feel a little bit better. Making yourself feel a little bit more comfortable about who you are. Not about anyone else, but vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Do you realize how hard this is? Now, I'm saying this to you guys. I'm saying this to you guys because you know what? You're here. I could say that uh, there has been people, after studying the history of this church, there has been people that have left 
and walked away. But you guys have been, and I could say, I'm not saying that you are martyrs, but you've been selfless. You, you've stuck in. You've stuck together. You've been here. You wanted to be here. You wanted to worship Jesus Christ in this building, and I want to say amen to that. And I want to say, I might be preaching to the choir by really lifting up verse 3. But I also want to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends just this building. Count others more significant than ourselves, or than yourselves, or who you are. That is a spiritual discipline that is very, very difficult. Um, I uh, know the sports analogy. When I went to play college football, see, whenever you play youth football and you go to middle school and you go to high school, you know everybody. You even know the guys you're playing against. You know them. You've either encountered them, you've read stuff about them, there's small you know, newspapers kind of write all these articles about all these different players, and so you kind of know who you're playing against. But when you come and you play college, you know no one in the room. And your first posture is to think you're better than everyone else. Because guess what? You can't live this well. You can't, in, in, on a football field, you can't sit there and be like, oh, I can't block that guy. Oh, I will, I will always get tackled. No, you can't. You've got to be like, I'm going to be able to beat that guy. I'm going to, you know, like you've got to really kind of get yourself motivated, right? So I think, I think this is a small, small microcosm of how we all kind of interact. If we really live down thinking of other people more significantly than ourselves, do you realize what the fruit that would come from the church? Do you realize the fruit that would come from living that out? You wouldn't be quick to disagree. You would be quick to try to understand. You would be like, okay. Instead of saying, you're wrong, dur. <laughs> you're wrong. What you said is wrong. I'd be like, you would be quick to say, well, maybe Durr has a better understanding than I do. Please, tell me more. Tell me more. If you count someone more significant than yourself, your posture to them will be about trying to understand who they are. Being able to really interact with them in a loving and caring manner, as opposed to, you're wrong, I think you're wrong, and I'm going I'm to walk away from you, and I'm going to part ways with you. That's our attitude. That's the church, not just good sin, not just locally, not just America. Just, walk, just read church history. Our attitude in this verse is poor. We do not think of others more significant than ourselves. And I think you can see it day to day. All right? It's a posture of humility posture of serving one another. It's a posture of trying to pursue one another out of love, not selfish ambition or vain conceit. Go to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of the others. Okay, so uh, this is what I would say. Uh, last week we had the blessing. The blessing of having certain people, uh, the youth kind of do a profession of faith. And I'm not going to ask Emily to come and, and tell me what I asked her. But I asked her, I said, if the church all gets together and figures out ways that it could serve as opposed to be served, what's going to happen? Those who actually need to be served for a moment will get served. Right? 
If we all offer ourselves to the world around us and serve Him, everyone does. All of our needs will be met. But inversely, it goes with verse 3. It says, no, I want to get. I want to receive. I want to think of myself as higher than you, so you need to serve me to some degree. My needs are more important than you right now. Verse 4. So we need to look at each other of your own interests, as opposed to what my interests are. What do you need? What are the things that you need? See, this is the issue. What Paul gives us is this very, very uh, uh, way of life that if being like-minded, thinking of others greater than yourself, and thinking of ways that you could serve one another, this has nothing to do. By the way, I don't know if you know this, the church in Philippi met in houses. The church in Philippi met in fields. The church in Philippi met everywhere. It wasn't contained by walls. Lydia, if you look at the beginning part of the book, speaks about Lydia. An elder, a female elder of the church, helped pull together these meetings where Jesus Christ would be worshipped. Because she saw how to serve and figure out a way of others being more needed, the needs of others being more significant than herself. Finally, verse 5. Have this mind. So if you go back, you don't have to switch. If you go back, it says, how do you have the mind to live the life that is a worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He gives you all these things. First, he says, this is what's happening. How you do it, this is how you have that mind. This is a bulk text here. My, here's my encouragement for you this week. Go to these verses. Look at these verses. Meditate on these verses. I can tell you right now, I, when I first focused on these verses when I was 20, 19 or 20, I didn't get them. In my most humble and honest times, even right now, I still don't get them. I get them. But I still don't get them in my heart. It is a life of constant action with Jesus Christ, constant pursuit of who Jesus is through prayer, through reading the scriptures, and studying these verses, how to do this, how to live this out, what Paul is giving us is something greater than just boxes to check off. It is an actual lifestyle. And it's good news if you really seek it. Let us pray. Worship Christ, Son of the living God. We thank you so much for how you bless us and what you bless us with.